Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. And I've entitled my sermon, The Meanest Man in Town. This is about the conversion of Saul, who more famously and eventually would become better known to us as Paul. There's not a real spiritual significance to his name change. We have tried to make that synonymous with his conversion, the old Saul, the new Paul, and really the name change has really absolutely nothing to do with that. It was more practical reasons for that. But that, that aside, uh, I just want to make some introductory comments about this narrative, and then I will get more, uh, plunge more deeply into this. Uh, Luke briefly introduces a character named Saul at the end of the narrative of Stephen being stoned. They laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, and Saul was consenting unto his death. And we kind of leave that there for just a minute, as then Luke goes on to another narrative of Philip the Evangelist landing in the area of Samaria, Preaching, revival breaks out, and of course you know that, we've already covered all of that. And then after the revival, he is called into the desert place where he meets the eunuch from Ethiopia, and he ministered to him, and the eunuch gets saved. And then after all of that is covered, Luke comes back and picks up the narrative of Saul. Because when Saul is introduced, he then becomes really the major character of the rest of the book of Acts. So this is a very major development. We've just hinted at it whenever we find the young man named Saul consenting unto the death, applauding the death, approving the death, the stoning of Stephen. But now Luke picks this up and we see this story developing about who this person Saul is and who he becomes, and he becomes the most significant character for the rest of the book, and really one of the most significant characters for all of the history of Christianity. It is a magnificent story, to say the very least. And here you have a comparison also that is easy to miss between Stephen and Saul. Both of them are unwaveringly devoted to their cause. Stephen is willing to die for his cause. Saul is headlong, 100% devoted to his cause, and their causes are diametrically opposed to one another. Stephen is declaring before the Jews a shift in this, this religion, a shift in this the whole economy of our relationship with God. He challenged the Jews in his sermon that this is no longer going to be a temple-centered religion. This is going to be something that expands out from the temple and goes to all the world. That didn't please the Jews at all. They were proud of their temple. They feel like they had a monopoly on this monotheistic re, uh, religion centered around Jehovah God. And Stephen dispelled all of that, much to their dismay. Well, that would have obviously angered Saul as well. He was not happy with this man dismantling his religion. Two dynamic forces 
diametrically opposed and both put in juxtaposition to one another. You can see the dynamic of Stephen, uh, totally devoted to Christianity and its advancement. Saul, totally devoted to Judaism and its preservation and the elimination of Christianity. These forces come together and collide. We read in Acts 9, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Doesn't that statement just really leap off the page at you? They could have said he was really angry. But, it, but the way this is stated really draws a graphic picture of just how angry he was. Breathing out these threats, these, not threats, murderous threats. This guy had it bad against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue and Damascus. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, everybody know what the way is, that was the only name they had to describe this new movement at this point. They were first called Christians where? At Antioch. Very good, students. They were first called Christians at Antioch. So they weren't really known as the Christian movement yet. What do we call them? And taking uh, a cue from Jesus' own description of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life, they had conveniently just reduced this down to, these are the people of the way, the people of Jesus. Now there is a movement, I don't know if it even exists still, but there was a movement in recent history called the Way Corps. And you don't want anything to do with them. They are a cult. So if you ever anybody comes to your house and they're from the Way Corps, and they might be passe by now, I don't know, but have nothing to do with the Way Corps. It's unfortunate they have adopted that terminology to describe themselves. So if you found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, and once again, that really exemplifies how cruel this man was. He didn't care if it was a man or a woman. He was ruthless that he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Obviously, we know this is Jesus appearing to him. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, and people puzzle about why would he call him Lord. It was just a, a term they used for, of reverence. Uh, so he did not know this was Jesus Christ the Lord. He was just in total awe of whoever this being is, and he used a reverential term to refer to him. Who are you, Lord? Respected one. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. I want to first of all describe to you Saul's character and this, this sermon will build. It's going to be just a little bit slow getting started. Bear with me. Stay awake. We will get to a pinnacle before we get done with this. But I've got to lay some groundwork. Sometimes you just have to do that. You can't jump in at full speed. You've got to build up to your speed. So Saul's zeal is remarkable. It's a zeal, obviously, for the wrong cause. But it is remarkable zeal. Uh, we assume that from the information given that 
Saul really was not on somebody else's assigned mission. He created his own mission. He was a Jew. He saw what was happening with this new Christianity that was being established infiltrating their synagogues, converting and drawing Jews away from Judaism, and he was incensed. And he was like, somebody needs to do something about this. And then, rather than just sitting there doing nothing, he said, and I'm just the man to do it. So we didn't see a lot of people rising up to the level that Saul did to aggressively go after this movement that was threatening his ancient religion, but he said, not only should somebody do it, I'm going to do something about it. So he took it upon himself without any evidence of being commissioned to do this by any higher authorities. He said, I'm going to stop this, and I'll do it single-handed if I have to, but I've had enough of this. They are threatening my religion, and he went to the priest, and he got the orders so that he could go to Damascus and personally oversee the arrest of anybody who belonged to this religion. What zeal. He was outraged by this perceived threat against his precious Judaism. He took the initiative. Nobody had to drive him. And so he goes to the high priest who happened to be a Sadducee. And it's another little tidbit of information that doesn't jump out at us. But it's important to understand Saul was a Pharisee. The high priest was a Sadducee. The Sadducees and the Pharisees do not get along. They are oil and water. They do not mix. And it took Saul dropping this prejudice that he had against a Pharisee to say, you know, under the circumstances, I think we can work together. So he humbled himself and went to the Sadducee and said, we have at least one thing in common. We ought to protect our religion of Judaism. We find him humbling himself and crossing over a barrier he never would have thought he would have crossed over to work hand in hand with the Sadducees. But he did. And he went to the high priest, the Sadducee, requested letters, told his plan. They worked together with him and provided the letters, the authority to go and do what he felt like he had to do on his mission. It shows, if nothing else, the depth of the desperation on Saul's part. And furthermore, going out to personally try to stamp out this new movement, one believer at a time, he didn't commission somebody else to do it. He said, I'll do it myself. I will go there myself. I will oversee and make sure it gets done. He is relentlessly pursuing his enemy. Men and women alike, doesn't matter to him. He's going to stop this movement no matter what it takes. I'm going to throw him in prison. I'm going to cleanse this world of this thing that is encroaching on Judaism. And deeply entirely 100% devoted to preserving Judaism. He was, a, he was a complex man. By his own written testimony in other letters that he subsequently wrote as a Christian convert, he writes of the kind of person that he used to be. And he even takes note of his own hyper zeal that he knew he had. He considered himself, number one, to be an exemplary Jew. And here's what he told the Philippian church about his history. He said, here's the kind of person I used to be. He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, 
He says, basically, you ain't seen nothing yet. He said, here's what I am, or at least what I used to be. I considered myself. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. It was, a, it was a, a matter of being obedient to the law, and they held that as a great uh, uh, thing of, of uh, honor and dignity, that he was a Jew of Jews. He said, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, and he took a great deal of pride in that. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and he's just blowing his own horn. I am really somebody. You think you've got something to brag about? I'm superior to you. That's what he's really saying here. Of course, he wasn't saying it in the current voice, but he's saying, I have all these things. That's the way I considered myself. And then he says, in regard of the law, he said, I was a Pharisee. And for him, that just said it all. I wasn't a Sadducee, I was a Pharisee. In his mind, that was the superior thing to be, the better thing to be, and he really bragged about it. He said, as for zeal, and this is the interesting part, as for zeal, he said, I persecuted the church. What other, what other proof do you need of the kind of over-hyper-zealous person I was? No one else did that. I did that. And then, here's the real kicker. He said, as for righteousness, based on the law, he said, I was absolutely faultless. Now, that's the blindness of the Pharisees. They really thought they could keep the law. They thought they were perfect by the law. Uh, they, they had this pride. You remember Jesus telling the Pharisee that, that uh, he boasts of how great he is before God. And then this humble man before him just smites his chest and says, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that is the contrast between having an honest opinion of yourself and somebody who was uh, minded like a Pharisee who thought themselves to be greater and better and more perfect than they could possibly ever be. That's Saul's testimony of himself. As to the law, he said, I was perfect in the law. Now, these are uh, traits, obviously, of what Paul thought himself to be at the time as an, uh, an unconvert, a Jew unconverted to Christianity. He thought he was the perfect Jew. And this Saul, who was headhunting Christians in defense of his, bloody, uh, of his beloved Judaism, is, he, he pictures himself as a hyperzealous maniac who, who is just unquestionably perfect in every way. He is perfect. His religion is perfect. His mission is God-ordained. He is right. Everybody else is wrong. And he will lie, labor tirelessly for his cause. And it was this kind of zeal and this kind of stubbornness that was precisely what was going to turn Saul into one of the greatest Christians ever to be converted. People, only people to be converted to Christianity to serve God. Now, let, let me stop right there and just talk for a minute about being used by God. God can take who you are and what you are and leverage that to his advantage if you choose to serve him. You can bring personality. You can bring talent that whenever you get converted becomes a wonderful tool to use in ministry. God doesn't require that. The, the flip side of that coin is you can bring what you think is nothing to the table and God can still use you. You don't have to be an outgoing personality to be used by God. He can use whatever you are. I have a personal friend, one whom I am closer to in, in 
uh, ministry, sharing ministry ideals and, 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 and conversations and feelings than anybody else on the face of the earth. We, we can talk to each other. And uh, God has worked wonderfully and mightily through this man. He just wrote a book. And he wrote it only for his family. He did not, he's not planning on the world finding this book and making him a popular author. He wrote it for one reason. He wanted his family to know who he was and all that he had been through. But he, he wanted to share it with me. And I read things about him I had never known in the many years I've known him. I, his childhood, his, the way he was raised, the broken home he was raised in. How that shaped his life, raised in a house uh, without any love, any affection. And he grew into adulthood and went into the ministry as a, a broken man, as a man that was not relational, did not know how to relate to people. It's the kind of person that most people would discount so you don't have any business being in the ministry if you can't do this. But to see the way that God worked through this man that was crippled in many ways that people think that's absolutely vital to be in the ministry. But God will use anybody. So Saul was a man that with his stubbornness, with his commitment, yes, that made him a great Christian. It made him a phenomenal character in the history of Christianity. On the other hand, you might bring nothing, or you might feel you're woefully lacking in what it takes to really serve God. And that's where God says, don't worry about it. If I want to use you, I will give you what you need. I will use you in ways that you never thought you could be used. I was terribly introverted when I was a, a, a young man. There were, there were many reasons for that. So many things shaped my life. And I'm not here to divulge all of that to you, but just suffice it to say that maybe the result of a, a father who expected perfection and wasn't willing to settle for anything less, maybe they had a tremendous uh, impact on how I felt about myself. Uh, maybe being raised to be a workaholic, that it's where you find your identity in what you are able to accomplish, you know. Maybe, maybe it was uh, just growing up being the runt of the pack. I was never tall enough. I was never strong enough. I was never big enough to participate in the sports. I could not tall enough to do basketball. I was not heavy enough to, I tried them all. I mean, when I went out for football, you're laughing already. My wife is in stitches over here. In those days, they had uniforms that everybody would go in and they were laid out in the gym. Here's your pads. Here's your helmets. Here's your football pants. Here's your jerseys. And everybody just goes in and they, and they pick through and they try things on to find something that fit. Nothing fit me. I mean, when I'm dressed in my football uniform, and you know, the shoulder pads are like hanging down to here, and the jersey's down to my knees, and the helmet's out on my shoulders. And when I'm running, parts and pieces are flying everywhere because nothing fits. I remember distinctly somebody asked me, You're on the football team? Yes. 
said, uh, what are you? And I proudly said, I am third string cornerback. I had a name. Anything with a title, I was proud of it. Third string means you never get in. All you do is practice real hard till you vomit. They finally got me in a game. It's the end of the season. You gotta let this guy play. I'm, I'm down here with my helmet down on my shoulders. Can't hardly see out of it. You gotta tilt back to see out of the helmet. And this big guy, I am a cornerback. This big guy catches a pass, and I am the only guy left on the field between him and the goal line. And I think, I'm gonna show them what I've got. They give me a chance. They've been sitting me on the bench. I'm going to teach them. And so I, I, I go and I put everything I got into tackling this guy. And he is dragging me down the field. I am hanging on for dear life. Just, and he, he, <laughs> I'm thinking, Lord, send help right now. I slowed him down enough for somebody else to come and tackle him. I did my job. I never expected to get a hand clap out of that. <laughs> I was an introvert. I felt inadequate in everything I did. I was never a popular athlete. I was never a popular person because I didn't, I didn't run in their circles. I didn't attend their parties. I didn't try and go to their dances. I, I, was, I was a nobody in school. And uh, you, really, you really get to understand how bad this is. When I, I saw a girl, uh, her last name started with an S. My last name started with an R. We sat beside each other, behind one, behind the other, through most of high school. Rooks, Snyder. We talked. This is, if, if I knew anybody, a new body who's, I knew somebody who's alphabetical next week. I saw her a few years ago. I said, you're Donna. She says, that's right. Who are you? <laughs> I'm Scott. Scott who? Scott Rook. She says, I'm sorry. I don't know who you are. I thought, yeah, this is worse than I really thought it was. It was so bad, and this, this sermon's going to be extra long because I am digressing so bad. I would, at the lunch, cafeteria lunch, I, I would get my tray of food, but if I couldn't find a place to sit down, right away, I felt like it was a spectacle. I felt like I was on display. I felt like people were looking at me. If I did not find a place to sit, Immediately, I would turn around and go and turn my entire tray of food in and walk out because I just could not stand the pressure of being a nobody in this room of somebody's. And when God called me, my attitude, I didn't have this conversation with God. I, I certainly had thoughts, but I did not have to look at I don't want to be like somebody who tells you the way it really wasn't, but my thoughts were, went like this. That is the biggest joke that I can imagine. Why do you want me? I'm a nobody. I'm a, I'm a misfit. 
I can't, I can't get up before people. I can't preach. You got the wrong guy, God. I mean, I'm, I'm expressing my thoughts over a period of time as I wrestled with this. Not a single conversation. These are all of my sentiments. You, you, don't, you don't need me. You don't want me. There's other people out there. You don't want, but God doesn't call the capable. He calls the willing. And no matter who you are, no matter what you think your limitations are, you can, you can't, if you will make yourself available. Not ability, availability. That's what he's looking for. Now it just so happened that God took Saul, who had had a hard time overcoming his history of putting people in prison and applauding their murder. And he said, I'm going to make you a significant player in this Christianity. And that, that seemed absurd. But Saul's zeal and his commitment served him well. He uses some of the things you can bring to the table, but he'll use you if you bring nothing to the table. Now we get down to Saul's actual conversion. If there's one more assessment by Paul that we need to look at, it's this. In the 13th verse of 1 Timothy 1, Paul looks back on himself, and other than talking about how great he thought he was, now in an honest moment of reflection, he has this to say about his former self. This is Paul writing about his former life when he was Saul. He said, even though I was once a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Now, there's something very significant about this. First of all, to take somebody who's violent and transform them. That's a miracle in itself. When we allow ourselves to develop to the point where we become violent people, you know, it's kind of like, at that point, the toothpaste is out of the tube. How do you put it back in? Once you've allowed yourself to go berserk, once you've allowed yourself to, to flip out, you've given yourself permission to flip out, it's harder to unlearn that than it was to learn to do it in the first place. Once you have grown up in a home where people have demonstrated to you the way to handle life is to go crazy, and you say, well, that's the way that I operate my life. Don't make me mad. You won't like me when I'm angry. That's the old uh, Incredible Hulk line, you know. Don't make me angry. You don't like me when, I'm, when you give yourself permission to do that. How do you ever rein that back in? Where's the psychologist? Where's the psychiatrist? Where is the drug? Where is anything that gets you to settle back down and say, you can't, you can't operate like that you that people don't do that how do you do it? you know God can God can heal you God can touch you God can take your temper and he can get you in control of yourself so the man who was a violent man he said I was a violent man that's not going to work for minister we're going to have to fix that but it can be fixed but if you think you're going to fix it yourself you're probably going to fail at that you need God to transform you so your testimony can be, I once used to be like this. I was out of control. You pushed me too far and I went crazy. But God got a hold of you and God healed you and God transformed you and gave you the gift of the control of the Holy Spirit in your life. One of the, 
One of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is what? Self-control. So when you're possessed by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, you find that ability to be able to find that control in your life that you lacked for the rest of your life. Now these are the traits of Paul as he looks back on himself. He confessed he was blind, blind by ignorance and blinded by unbelief. And what's more interesting is who he told this to. That was in the book of what? Timothy. Timothy was what? His protege. And Paul is saying, I want to tell you something I have learned in my life. I'm going to pour it into you so you don't have to make the same mistakes I made. He said, man, I was a bless, blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was, I was a violent man. And he said, but I did it. I, I, was, I was stupid. I did it ignorantly. I did it foolishly. And he's telling this to Timothy. He wants Timothy to learn something from it. We can learn something as well, but he really wants Timothy to learn something from this. Something that we should listen closely to today, this valuable piece of advice. And that is ignorance and unbelief are devastating maladies to be afflicted by. There might be someone here today afflicted with ignorance and unbelief. I don't know everybody here. I don't know what you're going through. But all I know is anybody who is plagued by ignorance and unbelief, they are so stubborn. They are so hard to reach. They are blinded, blinded. They think they know, but they don't. How many of you here know somebody that they think they know and you could swear on a stack of Bibles they don't have a clue? How many of you know somebody like that? Some of you are afraid to lift your hand, aren't you? And it's the kind of person... Please excuse me for saying so. And it's not good and it's not right. But it's the kind of person that you just feel like needs two by four therapy to the back of the head. You, you, you're, con you're convinced it's the only thing that is going to get through to them. That's what blindness and unbelief does to people. That you just can't penetrate. You can't get through to them. They got their mind made up and they are totally dead wrong. Paul says to Timothy, that was me. And what did it take to change that kind of a, a brokenness? Well, it took a pretty drastic measure for Jesus to say, uh, this one I must handle myself. An angel's not going to get it. And he comes down and he appears before Saul. In all, he said, I'm, I'm going to pull out all the stops. In all of his brightness, blinding this man, driving him down to the dust, and asks him a simple question. What do you think you're doing persecuting me? I don't even know who you are. I'll tell you who I am. Jesus. You're persecuting me. Knock it off. It took a personal visit. That's what it took. That was the extreme point it took to get through to blindness, ignorance, and unbelief. But it worked. Now that's not going to happen to everybody. 
I don't know what it takes to change the blindness of other people who are so stubbornly set against the truth. One commentator did make this observation, and I really like this. He says, the change was initiated not from inside, but from the outside. And sometimes it just takes a, a, a drastic change in circumstances to get somebody to change. Now, here, here's a little point I want to share with you. Some of you may have a child. You may have a friend. You may uh, have any other kind of relative to any degree that they, they are blinded, they are stubborn, they are ignorant, they're not going to change. And what is it going to take to get through? And then tragedy comes into their life. And the natural thing, because you love them, is to say, pray for them. Pray for them. They're really going through a hard time. And you know what? Maybe the best thing you can pray is turn it on, God. Crank up the heat. You know, if you're running around trying to save them from themselves because you feel bad for themselves, you maybe are not really cooperating with what God is trying to do in their life. If you're going to say a prayer, your prayer ought to be nothing less than save them no matter what. And let God drive them to the point where they are now have to look up and surrender. So yeah, I know you got loved ones that are going through some hard times. Just pray God saves them. And trust God. Say, God, whatever it takes, if it takes bringing them to the very point of death, do whatever you got, but have to do, God, but save them. Break that blindness. Break that unbelief. Break that stubbornness. And bring them to you. Another fascinating detail of this conversion story is how God uses Ananias to minister to Saul. You may know the story as it goes on. If you don't, let me just quickly summarize. I don't have to take time reading all this. While Saul has been led, blinded by the light, into town and found a place to stay, he stays for three days. And the Bible says he ate nothing and he drank nothing. Now, you can go three days without drinking something, but after that, it's, it's dangerous. You are on the point of possibly dying. Kidney failure sets in. Uh, three days is, is maximum. Some people have made it longer than that. There's always exceptions to the rule. But the doctors will tell you, you're in danger. You go three days without liquids. He ate nothing. He drank nothing. I don't know what he was doing, but he had lost his appetite. He had lost his will for everything, except he had been blinded. And he was now realizing his whole mission was, was uh, wrong. And, and he's, he's thinking, he's trying to sort this all out. His Judaism uh, is, is no longer the most important thing. He, he has come face to face with Jesus and he knows what he did wrong. But you know, he's blinded. Am I going to die like this? Is this my penalty? What? And he's praying. And God speaks to Saul and says, I'm going to send you somebody. And God speaks to Ananias. And he said, I've got a man I want you to go see. Go lay your hands on him. And so God is imparting this information supernaturally to two separate men to bring them together for this God appointment. And when God speaks to Ananias, Ananias says, isn't that the man that is hunting people like me? And God assures him it's going to be all right. So Ananias is obedient. I think that's phenomenal for Ananias to go fearing, knowing the reputation of Saul. 
and going in there and, and coming to him, Brother Saul. And he lays his hands on him and he prays for him and his eyes are opened. What a phenomenal story of God using people who are yielded to him and helping them to overcome their fears. And God speaks to Ananias and tells him this. This is, this is very interesting. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. Right there you have the mission, the new mission of the newly saved Saul. That he's going to be a missionary to the Gentiles. He's going to open up the gospel outside of Jews. This is my man. I've already got his plan made. To the Gentiles and their kings and the people and to the people of Israel. Not to ignore them. And next verse. I will show him. How much he must suffer for my name. That doesn't get off to a great start. Who wants to know the very first thing that God wants you to know about? If you're going to serve me, I'm going to send you to these people and you're going to suffer terribly for doing it. And that's the kind of things that we sometimes shy away from. Who wants to answer that call? It's not the kind of recruitment tactic we typically think is most effective. I, I know that. I know that firsthand. I, I, just let me tell you something. I went to Honduras with a team of ministers. And we were going down there to help build a church. I was at the peak of my uh, uh, physique and abilities and young and, and ambitious and tireless and and uh, I had my building skills. I had built uh, houses and, and apartments in, in Alabama. I had my tools. And, and I was anxious to go and help build a church in Honduras. And it, it, was, it was difficult. You're down there basically, you know, Central America. That's right there at the equator. And uh, the, the heat is direct. It, it is brutal for we northerners. And uh, the people down there were smart enough to cover up with long sleeve shirts. We go down with t-shirts because that's what we think up here hot weather is for. And uh, some of us burnt like a lobster. And it was, it was difficult. It was hot. It was oppressive. The work days were long. We had to work hard. We had to work fast. We had to get the church done. And I was right in there just, just working as hard as anybody and, and uh, loving every minute of it because I had the energy to do that. And one preacher that went down there went around with his little video camera and he was taping everything. He would, he'd never picked up a hammer. He never hit a lick at a snake, but he was taking pictures. He was taking video. He wanted to come back and make a promo so other people could go down there, I guess, and take their cameras and take video too. I don't know. So he came up to me. I was hot. I was tired. I was not sleeping but two or three hours a night. I was burnt. And Montezuma's revenge had found me. It was the lettuce. I was sick. I was cramping. I was miserable and loving every minute of it. And he come up and he put that camera in my face. He said, hey, we want to we get a spot for you on this video. Tell us a little bit about your experience. And I turned to the camera and I said, if you're thinking about coming, I said, I want you to know how difficult this is. And I told him, I laid it out. And I said, but 
There's something very rewarding about knowing that you are contributing to the kingdom of God. You are building a church for others. You don't know who's going to be saved. And I got done, and I, I just felt like I had, I did a good job. He said, okay, we're going to shoot this again. And they said, this time, don't say how bad it is. <laughs> I refused to cooperate. I was, I did not say this, I thought it. Get that camera out of my face now. <laughs> or you're gonna be wearing that around your neck the rest of the day. That's how I, I, and I, I gritted my teeth and I told him, I'm done. Go away, I told him, go away, I'm done, get out of here. That's a tough job. And for him to want me to make a video that makes it look like this is a Bahama vacation. Come to Central America and enjoy the scenery. See the banana trees. Look at the mango trees. It was hard. And I wanted to be honest about it. He didn't want me to be honest. I want people to come here. Well, you better not misrepresent it. I was livid. Another time I was at district council and the candidates were being ordained and they asked a pastor to come up and share a few words and pray and he got up there to the ordinees, to the people who were about to be ordained and he told them how hard it was going to be in the ministry. There are going to be times you're going to be suffering. You won't have any friends. You're going to want to quit a thousand times. And then he prayed and I heard ministers after the, after the service say, he should have never said anything like that. I was mad again. I keep getting mad when people do this stuff. Why not? Why not? You know what? I think one of the biggest problems I have in Christianity is people are not telling the truth about what it costs to follow Jesus. It's not easy. And I'm not trying to sell you a carnival cruise. I'm trying to tell you, if you're going to follow Jesus, take up your cross and follow him. That's not an easy thing to do. But I'm going to tell you the truth. And if you accept it, God will give you the strength to do it. And then we have Saul's confirmation. I'm just about done. If you give me two minutes... Set your watch. Saul got converted. The disciples, he met with the disciples locally in Damascus. They discovered his conversion. They welcomed him in. He came to cleanse the synagogues of the Christians, but now he's coming to convert the people in the synagogues to Christianity. They were baffled. They didn't know what to make of this. It didn't take long for God's promise of suffering to set in because the people, the Jews in Damascus, heard about it and they put out a, a warrant on his head. And the disciples had to sneak him out of town. It was so dangerous for him. He went to Jerusalem and the disciples there wanted nothing to do with him. They were afraid of him, all except Barnabas. And Barnabas befriended him and took him in. Thank God for Barnabas. The rest of them didn't want to take a chance on him. The Jews found out he was in Jerusalem. Once again, they put out a contract on his head. I'm going to show you how much you're going to have to suffer for trying to follow me. And then Luke summarizes this whole narrative. And he says, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, the church increased in numbers. You can be encouraged by that. We're going to, as a church, have times of peace and prosperity. We're going to have times of battle like you never imagined. But once in a while, God is going to give us those times of peace and prosperity. You better enjoy them when they come.
because he's not going to make us lose heart through ceaseless struggles and battles. Thank God he's in charge of this. Bow your heads.